Your Bibles, if you would, please, tonight to Ephesians chapter 5. We're getting down close to the end of this fifth chapter, and we're in a section of chapter 5 that deals with the demonstration of the filling of the Spirit. It almost seems incidental that when Paul comes down to this last part of the chapter that he begins a discussion about marriage relationships, but when we look at this very carefully, we see surely that this is not an accident because all of this ties in with what he's talking about, the spirit and the love that Christ has for his church. And if we come away from this section that we're studying now, uh, not looking at the larger picture or thinking that the larger picture is talking about marriage, then we're really making a mistake here, because what Paul's main theme here is Christ's relationship to his church. And of course, family relationships are a part of that, because All churches are made up of families, and we'll never understand what our relationship with God should be until we understand also what our relationship to one another is, and that works both ways. You have to have an understanding of these things, and I think Paul is telling us here to be filled with the Spirit. Now, sometimes as we look at this chapter, uh, we may find it hard to figure out, is Paul really speaking from the lesser to the greater? Is he speaking about marriage as being emblematic of the church? Or is he talking about the church being a symbol for how we should build marriage relationships? So sometimes it's hard to determine which he's trying to do. And he goes from one theme to the other. But he's trying to tell us here about the relationship that we need to have to God, to Jesus Christ. And then also, of course, that carries over into the relationships that we have with one another. And that's the subject of this last part. The outward demonstration of the filling of the Spirit, which comes by or is shown by, manifested by, the relationships that we have with one another. So he began this section talking about the the duties of a wife towards her husband. And we learned in our lesson last week that the idea for the wife that he puts forth here is that a wife is to be in submission. That doesn't mean that she is inferior, doesn't mean that she's unequal to her husband, but that God has given her a place of submission. And we talked about in our last message how that God has designed it that way in creation, and then how through the fall of man that God intensified that requirement. Submission was intensified because of the fall, because whenever God's order of things is subverted, like Eve did when she took a place, took her place outside of where she should have been, doing what she shouldn't have done, when she should have relied upon her husband, when you go outside of God's order of things, you'll always find out that chaos and confusion is the result of that. One of the things also that we talked about last week was the submission of the wife as a, as a church principle. And we spent a good deal of time talking about 1 Corinthians and, and uh, where the scriptures talk about that a woman is supposed to keep silent in the churches. You know, sometimes I'm, a, I'm amused by the comments that people make when they go out the door after you preach a message like that. We were talking about women are to keep silent in the church. Brother Mac Campbell told me when he went out that he was still looking for that scripture in the Bible that said that women were supposed to keep silent in the home. Um, We haven't found that one yet, but if you do, let me know about that, and I'll be sure to preach about it. But this week, we're going to move on from the woman, and we're going to talk about the role of husbands. God has also given a command for husbands, and what we find from these scriptures that, that God sets the requirements so high for the husband that this really does 
require our utmost attention to what he has to say here. Now, from verse 25 down to the end of the chapter in verse number 33, Paul is discussing duties of the husband. So let's stand, if you would, please, as we read God's Word tonight. Ephesians chapter 5, we're we're beginning with verse number 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify... And cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church." For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband." Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to preach from your word tonight. Lord, help us to learn these principles that are good for our families, that are good for our church. Help us to take these to heart. May we understand it so much better what you require of us. Bless in the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't think that it's any secret that when we start to talk about marriage, that people really want to concentrate on what we find in verses number 22 through 24 of this chapter. People want to talk about the role of the wife. And whenever you talk about uh, the idea of submission that raises the ire of people, many people don't think that Paul has any right to talk about this in the way that he does. He's approaching the subject in the wrong way. He should not be discussing women in the way that he does in this scripture. And as I spoke last week, there are some people who are convinced that that Paul was prejudiced against women. He didn't like women, that these are his personal opinions. These are not Holy Spirit, God-breathed words of scripture that Paul is giving us, but this is simply his own idea of what women are supposed to be. Now, the truth of the matter, of course, is that Paul is not prejudiced. And what he does here, he goes right back to the very beginning. He goes back to Old Testament principles, and he shows us from those, from those Old Testament scriptures, or what he has in mind, the idea of the Old Testament scripture, that this is exactly what God requires. Well, even though this is an old-time subject and an old-time uh, scriptures that, that deal with this, yet it hasn't stopped people from misapplying the principles that God's Word sets down for how a family ought to be run, how a wife should act, and how a husband should also act. And so many men look at verses 22 through 24, and they see that word submit, and the word submit gets locked down into their brains, And they fail to see what comes in the following verses. I think if all of us clearly understood what begins here with verse number 25 and goes all the way down to the end of the chapter, if we clearly understood that, none of us would have any problem trying to figure out what Paul's talking about in verses 22 through 24. You see, God has given the husband one command concerning his wife. 
There aren't 20 different directives that Paul has given us as men. He, he doesn't say there are 30 different rules that you have to keep. There's no memorization required here. There are no steps that you have to follow. Paul just simply says you have one command. Husbands, love your wives. And in these next verses, Paul explains what that phrase means. Husbands, love your wives. Now, I want to start tonight or begin the discussion with the problematic mistakes of love. Husbands, love your wives. That seems like a very simple statement to us, and we ought not really have so much trouble trying to figure it out. It seems very simple. But before you ever get to this problem of husbands, love your wives, you have to deal with those people that I spoke about a minute ago. I mean, these are the ones that are stuck on the word submit. They camp right there on the word submit, and they don't get to the word love here in verse number 25. And I know that many men think that it's the woman's fault. She just will not be submissive. She's out of the will of God. She's not a submissive wife. She's not a subjection like she should be. And it's all the wife's fault. Well, if you really want to know the truth of things... The real perversion in this passage of Scripture is not the problem of the wife. The real perversion is the problem with the man. And that is that men have not loved their wives correctly and have not treated women correctly. And that's led to the problem that we have today. Now, if you look around the world today, there are many societies where the man is so dominant that women are considered to be nothing more than a doormat. And whatever a man wants to do with a woman, he's allowed to do that. He can disregard his marriage vows. He can treat his wife as a slave. And if she should be accused or suspected of infidelity, there are cultures in which the man can kill the woman without ever having to go to a trial. One of the reasons that the Muslim countries resist Western influence is because of this problem. They resist it so strenuously because... In the Western culture, we allow more freedom for women than they want to allow. Well, there are two things that need to be very clearly understood when subjection is considered. The first one is the woman is not a slave. She's not a servant. God did not give the woman to be the man's slave. Now, if you think that Islamic imams are the only ones in the world that have a problem with this and have got this thing wrong, well, you need to think about that again. Because much of what's wrong uh, in the family today has come from the training of Christian preachers who actually have this thing wrong themselves. I mean, even in our fundamental circles, many times, wives are treated as nothing more than servants. And even among some pastors, the wife is treated as nothing more than his tool in order to solidify his power of his pastorate. Well, God did not give the woman to be a servant to Adam. The Bible says that he gave her to be his helpmeet. Now, we discussed that last week, so I'm not going to go into that in in, in great detail tonight. But let me just remind you of this, that the Bible teaches us that the woman is complementary to a man. She fills out the deficiency. She completes the man. And the husband is to love his wife because his wife plugs right back into that hole in his side where God took her. And she's part of man's body. She's part of his flesh. He is his body, the Bible teaches us. So the woman is not the man's servant, and that needs to clear, be cleared up before a man can ever love his wife properly. 
Now, the next thing that we need to learn about the mistakes of love is that the woman is not a sex object. Looking at the woman merely as the object of of sensual pleasure is really what has led to many deviant practices uh, all across the world and among all kinds of men of this world. And looking at the woman in the wrong way with the wrong kind of love has caused these kinds of problems. Now, we're all very much aware of this, I think. If you've been attending services here, you've heard preaching about this before, that in the English language, uh, there's only one word that we have for love. That's L-O-V-E. We have one word, love. And that covers all different kinds of love. And the way that we determine what kind of love we're talking about is the context in which we use the word. That's the only way we can tell the difference. Well, a few weeks ago, we were discussing this as we were looking at John chapter 21. And we saw there that there are different words in the Greek that's used for love. Now, we were talking about a Jesus conversation with Peter where Jesus asked Peter a question in John chapter 21. I want to read this to you again. John 21 verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. In the Greek language, there are actually three different words for love. Two of those words are used in this passage. Jesus asked Peter the question using one form of the word love. He used the word agape, and Peter replied to his question using another form of the word love, the word philio. So those are two different words, and they have two different meanings. Agape, the word that Jesus used, means a fully devoted love, but philio, the word that Peter used, means a word like I'm very fond of you, or the meaning I'm very fond of you. Now, it's interesting that we don't find anywhere in all of the New Testament this third Greek word for love. That's the word eros. And what that word means is sensual, fleshly, lustly desire. We get the word erotic from eros. But that particular form of the word love is not found anywhere in the New Testament. But you know, when you talk to the world or lost people about love, usually this is what they have in mind. It's that word eros. And, and that's the picture that they have. And because they're using the wrong word and misunderstanding what love really is, it's caused all kinds of deviant problems. Now, when this mistake about love becomes the predominant thought of what love is, then sexual perversion will be the result of that. And it's always been the result. That kind of love is what caused polygamy to be a problem in the Old Testament. It was that kind of love that caused the sin, a sin to be perpetrated upon Noah by one of his sons. It was that kind of love that caused homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was that kind of love that caused... Uh, the men of Shechem, uh, Shechem in the Old Testament, to rape Dinah, one of Jacob's daughters, or Jacob's daughter. It's also that kind of love that caused incest and adultery, prostitution, to take place between Judah and his, and his uh, uh, daughter-in-law, Tamar. 
Now, by the time that you come to the New Testament and the preaching of Paul, as he uh, talks to people in his era, he faced the proliferation of male and female prostitutes all throughout the Roman Empire. In every city of the Roman Empire, this was a huge problem. Ephesus and Corinth and Athens and Rome, all of the people in these cities were involved involved in this, in this problem, this rife error of, of practicing eros instead of the other kind of love that the Bible talks about. Now, Paul had to deal with this in the marriage relationship because marriage had been so polluted and perverted. And so when, when Paul talks about love in Ephesians, when he talks about love that a husband has to have for his wife, he doesn't speak about eros, but instead he uses the very same word that Jesus used in John chapter 21. He says, husbands, love your wives, agapeo your wives, even as Christ also loved agapeo the church and gave himself for it. Now, that principle is what sets Christian marriage completely apart from the misunderstanding of the world. The world simply cannot understand this kind of love because people do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, does this mean then that there are no sexual or there shouldn't be any sensual desires in marriage? Well, the answer to that is, of course not, because Paul addresses that problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There he writes, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. So men and women are given together in marriage to help satisfy the sensual desires, the natural desires, the sexual desires of both men and women. Now, I don't think there's well, usually there's not people, there aren't people who want to get married and they want to get married to people that they're not attracted to. But unless the desire, that kind of desire and that kind of attraction is sanctified by agape love, then the relationship is going to be wrong. As I said, nobody but Christians can really understand this and that's because we have, are, are regenerated. We've been given a new heart. We've been given a heart in order that enables us to love as Christ loved. Now, that's not to say that we all practice that kind of love, because certainly we don't. And so that's why Paul has to remind us of that in these scriptures. In Galatians 5, Paul wrote, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. And the word that he used for love in that scripture is this very same word, agape. And so, husbands, if you are filled with the Spirit you will bear this particular kind of fruit. You will love your wife as Christ loves. But let's go on a little bit further here. I mean, we, we really couldn't go on to the next part until we understand what those problems, those mistakes about love are. But secondly, I want to talk to you about the perfect manner of love. And there's one thing that, that's really become more and more common in fundamental preaching And that is that preachers will say, well, you know, I'm I'm not so much concerned about doctrine. I really don't want to preach too much doctrine. I just want to be a practical preacher. And we've been over that before. You'll never understand the practical side until you understand the doctrinal side. Now, remember our saying here, as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, that right doctrine yields right practice. 
and certainly would have to say that that is true when we're talking about this subject. Now, sometimes, as I said before, it's hard to determine whether Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. Which side is he really trying to emphasize here? Is he emphasizing the marriage part or is he emphasizing the church part in Christ's love for the church? So is it the doctrine of the church or is it the doctrine of marriage? Well, most definitely, we must understand this when we get to this particular place, that an understanding of Christ's love for the church is paramount to getting this thing right concerning the proper love that a husband has for his wife. So I could put this to you very simply, husbands. You will not be a good husband until you take some time to study doctrine. And that means that husbands who shirk their responsibility to be good students of the Word of God What will happen to you is you'll harm your family in incalculable ways. You need to be a good student of God's word. So as Paul begins this this subject, he he talks about doctrine again. And he doesn't say, "Well, well, I'm going to show you how to have a perfect marriage... And then he goes to the shelf and he pulls off a book by a marriage counselor and he starts reading something where somebody has started applying human logic to the problems that men, men have with their wives and wives have with their husbands, the problems of marriage. Paul does not do that. Here he goes straight to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, here is the way that you deal with this. You love in the same way that Christ loved his church. How many of you ever picked up a marriage manual at the store, if you do that kind of thing, and read something like that. How many have ever watched Dr. Phil, and the first thing that he does before he begins to give his advice, he says, now hold on just a minute here, wait just a minute, let's go get the Bible, and let's see what the Bible has to say about this problem. Anybody ever see that happen? I haven't seen that happen. One reason is I don't watch Dr. Phil, but I can't imagine that it happens. And those of you that have seen that, you can verify that for me. It probably hasn't happened. Well, why does Dr. Phil and all these other people, why do they do things like that? Well, the answer is really found in 1 Corinthians, where it tells us that men seek after the wisdom of man, the foolishness of the wisdom of man. They don't seek after God. Well, God is the place where true wisdom is found. God is the foundation of wisdom, and we won't learn what we need to learn until we know what God has to say about it. And so if we want to find the proper answers for marriage and how marriage works, and remember this is God's institution, not man's institution, the place that you have to go is to the Word of God. And so this is exactly what Paul does. He goes to God, and he finds out what God has to say about that, and he shows us that the true love that a man has for his wife has to be compared to the love that Christ has for his church. So what kind of love is this? Well, first of all, this kind of love he's talking about is a sacrificing love. Christ gave himself for the church. Christ had a self-denying love. And we know that's true because Christ divested himself of his glory and his majesty. Jesus gave up everything in order that he might take care of the deepest need that we as humans have. Now, our deepest need is how can we be just with God? The Bible teaches us that we're sinners by nature, sinners by choice and by practice. And there's not one single thing that we could ever do in order for us to be justified in the sight of God. And so what Jesus came to do was to meet that greatest need that we had. And the only way that God would allow him to do that 
was for Jesus to become sin for us and become a sacrifice that takes care of the penalty of sin. Death on the cross was the shedding of innocent blood, and that's the only way that our redemption could be accomplished. Now, when I say that it was innocent blood, I truly do mean this, that it had to be perfectly, truly innocent blood. There couldn't be any imperfection in Christ. There could be no guilt in this sacrifice. And that kind of sacrifice was the only one that God would allow as a substitute. Well, that tells us then that Jesus is the only one who could have been a suitable Savior. He's the only one who had no sin. And so in order for Jesus to become that sacrifice for sin, the Bible teaches he had to die. And so Jesus gave up everything that he had in order to supply our deepest need. Well, that's what sacrificial love is. Sacrificial love is one that considers the other's need before it considers its own. Now, what Christ had in mind was our well-being. He wasn't concerned about what would happen to him. He was concerned about our well-being. And we know the death of the cross was not a pleasant thing to go through. I mean, that's the most horrible suffering that man could possibly, anybody could possibly endure was the death of the cross. But Jesus was willing to do that because it took care of our need. And you need to understand that to know what Paul says that, why Paul says it this way, that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That means that a husband has to have a sacrificial love, which also means that he will surrender his well-being in order for the well-being of his wife. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul said, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, if a husband loves his wife enough to die for her, then he has no problem giving up his selfish desires. There's no problem giving up his opinions, no problem giving up his personal preferences. And really, as husbands, we might think that, well, that has to be a miserable way to live. We can't possibly be happy by surrendering what we want to do, surrendering our preferences, surrendering our opinions, and giving up everything in order to satisfy our wives. So we think we cannot be happy by denying self. Well, the Bible teaches, though, that Christ's supreme happiness was in that he gave himself for us. So Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the scripture says the joy that was set before him. Well, going to the cross, that certainly wasn't joyful. That was a painful experience. But it was what, that came, what came after the cross. That's where the joy enters into this. And that brought the most joy imaginable to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what that's trying to teach us then, as a man surrenders his own life, as he gives up his own life for his wife, he will experience the most joy imaginable. Well, how is that possible? Well, when you get it into your brain and you understand that the wife is your own body, that she's flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone, you realize that everything that you do for yourself, you're also doing, or doing for your wife, you're also doing for yourself. 
In verse 29, it says, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. So it is a sacrificing love. The second thing that Paul points out here about this kind of love is that it is a purifying love. In verse number 26, he writes that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Well, the analogy that he's using here is that Christ purifies us through the word of God. And what a husband is to do, he's to do everything within his power to purify his wife by helping her to become a better Christian. Well, obviously, men, you can't help your wife to be a better Christian if you haven't helped yourself in that area. She's flesh of your flesh, bone of your bone. And so however that you improve your own spiritual condition will also improve the spiritual condition of your wife. Think about that for a minute. So what do you do? I mean, when your wife stumbles and falls, I mean... Uh, when, when you think that she's not doing what she should do, when she's not the spiritual person that you think that she ought to be, that she doesn't have the character that you think she ought to have, what do you do? Well, do you chide her? Do you browbeat her? Do you put her down? Well, you, know, you don't do that. You do exactly what Jesus does. You have a desire to wash her clean. And so what you want to do is try to help your wife from that defilement that she's in. And so you do that by limiting her exposure to the world's pollution. Now, maybe this is a subject for another night. We don't really have time to go into it now. But what happened, folks, when we turn women loose in the workplace? What happened to us? Well, what happened was that we began to expose our wives to the evil desires of men that are out there to all the evil that's in the world. Now, I don't know how you turn the clock back on that now and reverse the process. I don't know how we do that. So it's incumbent upon every Christian husband to be very careful about where you let your wife work. Love your wife properly at home also so that she doesn't get wandering eyes when she's out someplace else. Now, you have to think about it in this light, that Eve was created and then put into a perfect environment. She was put in the Garden of Eden. There was no sin there. And yet, what did Eve do in a perfect environment? She sinned, didn't she? So how do you think that your wife is going to survive in this world that we're living in today when you put her into the wrong environment? Well, there's going to be problems. And so that's why you have to keep your eye on things. President Reagan had a good line that he used with Gorbachev. And he was all interested, you know, in having good relations with the Soviet Union, reducing nuclear arms and all those kinds of things. And so he had a good line that he used with Gorbachev. He said, trust, but verify. And Gorbachev said to Reagan, every time you see me, you tell me that. Trust, but verify. Well, here's what a husband has to do. Let your wife know that you trust her but I don't think you'd be too far off base by trusting and verifying at the same time. Well, when Paul Paul wrote this thing about sanctifying and cleansing, what he has in mind here is that we are to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We're cleansed from all of our sins, but as we go through this life, we need daily cleansing. And that's because when Jesus comes, he wants to find a people that are purified, a people that is holy, a people without any blemishes. Now, remember 
that the goal of the Christian life, the final goal of the Christian life, is that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. So here's the thought about husbands and wives. A wife is a good wife to her husband as he loves her and protects her from evil. He purifies her. He keeps her holy. He keeps her chaste. And what kind of man that he is himself can either help or hinder that cause. So you have to be careful, men, about what kind of a spiritual person you are. And remember, you can either help your wife or you can hinder your wife by how close that you live to the Lord yourself. Now, thirdly, the perfect manner of love is that it is a caring love. Now, let's look again at verses 28 and 29. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Anybody here have a problem that you like to eat? I've got this strange problem. I get up in the morning, and I want to eat. At about noon, I want to eat. About five o'clock in the afternoon, I want to eat. And sometimes in between those times, I still want to eat. Well... Years ago, when, when I was doing construction work, there was one thing that I really looked forward to every day. I looked forward to supper time. I mean, I didn't care what else was going on anywhere else. I wanted to get home for supper time. And my wife is an excellent cook, and I'm really concerned about what I put in my body. And I want the very best that I can get there. So I wanted to get home, and supper time was my absolute favorite time of the day. Well, I love my body. I want to give it the very best nourishment that I can. Sometimes I overcompensate in doing that because you never know when you're going to miss the next meal. So you've got to take care of that problem. But here's what you do. You provide for yourself because your body needs that. Now, with the church, Christ provides for the church as his body, and in turn, that helps the cause of Christ. And so that's the same thing as Christ helps the body. He's also helping himself. Well, that's the way that it works in a marriage as well. As, as you provide for your wife, as you take care of her, you are providing for yourself. And that's because you're one flesh. So the Bible talks about nourishing the wife. Well, nourishment comes in different forms. Uh, nourishment, we can be talking about physically feeding someone, giving them food. That's one form of nourishment. But the Bible's talking about so much more than that kind of nourishment. Because what it's really talking about here is your wife needs things like emotional support. Your wife needs encouragement. The very worst thing that you can do for your wife is when she's having emotional problems and when she's ill, to expect her to do everything that she always did just like she always did them, like nothing's wrong. Now, here's what happens when I'm sick. My wife, I think, is probably the most caring and compassionate person I know. When I am sick, she waits on me hand and foot. She takes care of all of my needs. She makes sure that I'm getting my rest. When I get ready to go to the doctor, as soon as I hit the door when I come home, she wants to know what that doctor said. Well, you know, how are things going? She makes sure that I take my medicine on time. And as I said, she, she makes sure I get all the rest that I need. Folks, I'm blessed because my wife takes care of me in that way. But I'm going to admit to you and to her, she's sitting back there, that I know that as a husband, I fail in returning that same kind of care and concern. Now, men, you know how we are. When we get sick, we are big babies. 
and we need somebody to take care of us. When your wife gets sick, she's still got to cook supper. She's still got to do the laundry. She's got to take care of everything, take care of the kids. Well, we have to admit that we don't take enough care and concern for our wives in that area. Now, it's not really that we don't care. And I can't say that I don't care. I absolutely do care. But what I need to learn, and probably what some of you need to learn, is that a wife needs more than a pat on the head every now and then. And she needs a little bit more than a how you doing every now and then. A wife is someone who needs caressing. She needs tenderness. And I'm going to warn you something until you figure that out. You better watch out for flying objects. You've got to learn these things. Well, Christ's care and concern, and the picture that we have here, his care and concern is so deep that what Jesus decided to do was to share his life with us. Now, he went to the cross, and he could have stopped there. He could have said, that's enough to prove my love for you. And I don't think there's anyone here who would deny that Christ going to the cross and dying for us proved his love for us. But Christ does so much more than that. He didn't stop with what he did at the cross. He wants to do more for us. And so what does Christ do? Well, every day, he's our comforter. Every day, Christ is our provider. Whenever you call, he's always there. He answers every call. When, you're, when you feel down, Christ is there to offer you encouragement. When you're happy, he comes along and he just enhances the joy that you have. That's the way that a husband's supposed to love his wife. Even as Christ also loved the church, he nourishes and he cares for us. Now, let's look at the final principle for loving husbands. Number three is the proper motive for love. I think we've touched on this some already, but Christ's love for us was not a self-motivated love. It was a love that was for our good and for our welfare. You see, if Jesus were looking for something else, I mean, if he decided that he was going to love us on some other basis, then he would be looking for people who had already demonstrated some kind of love for him. And he would be interested in reciprocating love. That is, you love me and I'll love you. But that's not the way that Christ works. The Bible teaches us that Christ loved us from the very beginning. He loved us when we were yet sinners. Now, we had never done anything that caused Christ to love us. There wasn't anything that God could see in us. And the love that Christ had for us is a love that arose out of himself. And so he's not looking at something that we had done and some good work or anything else, not our personalities, not anything about us. His love for us arose from within himself. Well, the question is, can we love in that kind of way? Well, if we can, then here's what we'll find out. That a love like that will be one that's patterned after Christ. Well, we've already talked about the pattern in some ways. We've talked about sacrificial love and purifying love. We've talked about caring love. That's the pattern that Christ set for us. But I want you to notice something else about this, and that is that the love of Christ, the love that he had for us, was actually determined before we were ever born. We hadn't done anything. We had no opportunity to do anything that was good or bad, but Christ loved us before we were born. He couldn't have seen anything in us. He couldn't have seen something there that he desired because there was not anything there yet. We weren't born. Well, with human love, we look at things in a little different way. We always make decisions uh, about our love based upon things that we've already seen. So a man may decide to choose a wife, and he'll look at her, and he decides he loves her because she's beautiful. If she is, and that's his reason, 
Some people will look a little bit deeper than that, and uh, a man decides that he loves a wife because of her personality. Some are a little bit more shallow, and they may decide they want to marry someone because they've got money or because it would be prestigious to marry this particular person, and so they marry for those reasons. But if those things are the continuing basis for love, then that marriage is going to be in trouble. God never commands the husband to love his wife as long as she remains attractive to him. He doesn't say to love your wife as long as she doesn't go through those crazy mood swings that she's always in. And he doesn't say love your wife as long as she can work and help bring home the dough to keep the household going. You can love your wife. No, God says that a husband is to love his wife simply because it is God's will for him to love her. There aren't any other reasons. This is God's will for you to love your wife. Now, today we hear all this talk about people falling in and out of love. Marriages break up because either the husband says or the wife says, well, you know, that person is not filling my needs anymore. I'm just not getting what I need from them. Well, the Bible never says anything in any place that you're to love your wife because she fulfills some particular need that you have. Men have got to stop their crying and their crocodile tears and they're being babied all the time because I don't get my needs filled. That's not what the Bible says that marriage is all about. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved. Now, here's something that we notice about Christ's love is that he continued to love us despite all of our deficiencies. Have you ever noticed that you aren't perfect? Anybody here ever sin? Of course we do. But does Christ say because you sin, because you aren't perfect, that I'm not going to love you anymore? Well, of course he doesn't. He doesn't do that. So here's with the man. If you're going to love as Christ loved, you can't camp out on your wife's deficiencies and say because you are deficient in some area, and I don't like where you are deficient, that I'm not going to love you anymore. That's not how Christ loved. Now, here's the thing about agape love that we've been talking about. You cannot fall out of this kind of love. It's impossible. This is a love that God has, a different kind of love, and God has never said that he'll fall out of love with us. He's always told us he'll be there. He'll never forsake us. He simply cannot fall out of love with you. His love is everlasting. So he says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. And so if your love is patterned after the kind of love that Christ has, then you can never say, well, I think I've got a reason for divorce. I've got grounds for divorce now. You can't say that. If everything that you think that your wife is, or that she was, if everything that you married her for vanishes, if it's all gone, the Bible says that you're still supposed to love your wife. And why do you do it? Because when she is in that condition, she needs your love then more than ever. When she is deficient, when she's got problems, when there are things going on, the woman needs the husband more than ever. And that's why you can't fall out of love with them. Well, when a woman, if she starts to complain about submission that we read about in verses 22 through 24, just step back or go down a little bit further and read these other verses, and you'll find out here that God has put awesome responsibility upon man. With his authority... You know, we like to talk about that authority that we have, men. With that authority comes that awesome responsibility. And to be the man that you should be, you have to take that responsibility. Now, finally, I want to show you that this marital love and Christ's love, 
If it is like Christ, it is particular in choice. There's really nothing clearer about for whom Christ died than what we read right here in these verses. The scripture says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, the Bible states that so specifically that what we need to understand about this is that the love that Paul is talking about here is a love that is reserved for the church and is a love that's passed out to no others. Christ loves the church in a particular way that he doesn't love anyone else. Now, here's the thing about Christ. He doesn't have wandering eyes. He has a bride. And the church is called the bride of Christ. And Christ has his eye on that bride. And he doesn't take his eye off the bride. And he loves her in, no, in a very special way that's uncommon, unlike any other love that he has for anybody else. Now, I want to point this out then in closing the message tonight. That the husband is to have no eyes for anyone but his wife. A couple of months ago when... Janet and Corey were getting married. I mentioned this in the, in the wedding ceremony. I looked at Corey and I said to Corey, Now, Corey, you are not to have eyes. You're not to love anyone else, no other woman but your wife. She is the only woman for you. And to Janet, I said, Janet, you have eyes for no other man. Your husband, Corey, this is the one that you look to and you don't look at anybody else. You love him and him alone. So for one man, one wife, one wife, one man. Here's what verse 31 says. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. Ever thought about that verse? How can you divide one flesh? What would you do? Now for a a marriage to split up, this would be kind of like cutting your arm off or your leg off. That's what we think. But actually, it's far worse than that. Because verse number 23 tells us that the husband is the head of the wife. So you get a divorce, your marriage splits up, what have you done? You've cut the head off. You've severed the head from the body. Well, that doesn't make much sense, does it? This is how close this is. So you see, when when God takes marriage... And when Paul talks about marriage and he puts it into the realm of how Christ loves his church, then we immediately see right then that we're not talking about casual relationships. We're not talking about merely something that's been put together as a, as a, as a government institution and the government's put their stamp of approval upon it because you signed a marriage license and it got filed at the county clerk's office. It's way more than that. God calls it the union of flesh, one flesh, one body. And that's what God, why God says, what I have joined together, let not man put asunder. Remember that marriage is God's institution and not man's. We have no right to put our own parameters on marriage. God is the one who sets the standard. God is the one who makes the rules because it's his institution. And what God says to the man one more time He gives him one directive, L-O-V-E, love. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That is your directive as a husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to spend studying your word. Lord, we just pray that you would strengthen our families, help us as husbands to really understand what this means 
And Lord, we, we know this, that if a husband will love his wife as he should, there are no problems with submission because the wife will come along beside him. She'll be his helper and she'll understand her God-given role. Bless our people. Strengthen our families of our church. Help us to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.